This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us this week for the first time ever, I think, a freelance writer and contributor to VanityFair.com, Ben Kroll. Hi, Ben. Hi. How's it going? Ben, you're here for a very special reason, which is that you have the privilege of living outside of the United States in a city where a film called Tenet is playing in theaters for people. Um, we are fascinated to hear about that, and you're, you're writing about it for VF.com this week. We're going to talk about Tenet later and hear all about that. And then also on this episode, we've got two more Emmy season interviews as Emmy voting wraps up. Um, We have a conversation that Mike Hogan had with Giancarlo Esposito, who's a double nominee for both The Mandalorian and Better Call Saul. And then I sort of moderated and sort of just got to eavesdrop on a conversation between two really powerful women in television, Amy Sherman Palladino, the creator of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and Leslie Linka-Glotter, who's directed an episode of every television show you've ever heard of and is an executive producer on Homeland. They're both nominated this year. They've been friends forever. Um, I'll talk more about that conversation, but it is fascinating. And then real quick, before we get into Tenet, I just wanted to give a plug for what you probably have already seen out there. The September issue of Vanity Fair is rolling out right now. It's got this stunning cover of Breonna Taylor. It's one of the most exciting things we've published. I just wanted to give it a shout out. Richard, is there anything particular from the September issue um, that you've been paying attention to or think people should read? Well, I just think in general, it's exciting that Tanahasi Coates, who is, you know, a revered writer in many different forms, was the guest editor. He has a beautiful and urgent editor's letter kind of opening the issue. But I think the real centerpiece is the reason that this uh, Amy Sherald portrait of Breonna Taylor is on the cover is because Ta-Nehisi spent time um, speaking with her family, particularly her mother, her mother. And there is a beautiful, I mean, obviously wrenching, you know, first person account from Brianna's mother about, uh, you know, what happened to her daughter and and what life has been like since. And, and yeah, so I think, you know, it's not really, I guess, related to stuff that we talk about uh, in a direct way on this podcast, but it is obviously urgent to everyone in this country and beyond. Yeah. And then and there's a lot of other stuff, too, that's more, you know, celebratory and exciting about, you know, new generations of activists, be they, you know, political activists or people in the entertainment sphere who are working, you know, with their star profile to affect change. So I feel yeah, like it's a really, really in-depth kind of thing, this issue. Yeah. There's beautiful portraits of people like John Boyega and Letitia Wright and like actors, you know, from the movie industry. There's an interview between Ava DuVernay and Angela Davis where Angela Davis tells her that she watched When They See Us, uh, Ava DuVernay's Netflix series, and she kind of, kind of blows her mind. Um, so there's there's Hollywood adjacent stuff, even as it's a uh, an issue that encompasses much more than that. So go get it. Subscribe. Uh, OK, so, Ben, we brought you here to talk to us about Tenet. Um 
It is opening in the U.S. in some form. And uh, Richard, you can probably explain a little bit more about that since I'm a little bit behind on it. But uh, in Paris, where you live, is it just opening like a normal blockbuster? Like, does it feel like you were you were back into normal times with a giant Christopher Nolan movie coming out? I mean, it's not opening like a single normal blockbuster. It's opening like every uh, major blockbuster. <laughs> I think it must be playing on one third of the screens in Paris. And that says a lot because there are a lot of screens in Paris. And usually in Paris, I think France is one of the countries where, you know, there's a strong homegrown film industry. So it's not necessarily going to like bend over backwards for a big Hollywood blockbuster. But maybe Tenet's the exception now. I mean, France has a strong homegrown film industry. You'd be surprised that, I mean, the films that really drive the French film industry are are not necessarily the ones that make it over to the United States. So there's a lot of dumb comedies and very dumb racist comedies and then very racist dumb comedies. Uh, <laughs> it's not and, all Olivier SIS. That's not in the entire French film industry. Oh God. I mean, would, would, <laughs> would, would, would that it be so sweet, but <laughs> um, no, not quite. And so none of those uh, sort of dumb comedies have come out yet. Uh, I hadn't really come out this summer. It's, for some reason, the big high season for those films are uh, February, January. And so there was a bit of a dearth over the course of the summer. There was just not much going on. Uh, there was a lot of retrospective films. Uh, there's a really good repertory scene in Paris, and people were going to go see those films, but that's obviously a self-selecting group of people. And, and for the most part, people did not go back to the movies since the theaters opened uh, in mid-June. So when you went to see Tenet this week, how did it feel? It felt really strange. I mean, uh, I, I actually, to, I, I, I dare say, I don't mean to brag, but I, I went to go see it twice just because I wanted to get the impression uh, from two different theaters. There's one theater that really fits my demographic, which is uh, 30-year-old uh, yuppies, basically. <laughs> That's around the corner from my house. And really, the, the media audience was just 30-year-old media people who live in my area. And so that, you know, felt like old times. It felt pretty good. Uh, That's who we think of as a pretty strong Christopher Nolan demographic, I think. Well, I'll tell you who the real strong Christopher Nolan demographic was. I went to the largest theater in Paris uh, last night to go see it, last night being Tuesday night, uh, for the sort of uh, sneak preview. And the room sits... Uh, 1,200 people, but because of reduced capacity, they lowered it to 800. And of the 800 people that were there, I would say 624 of them were 23-year-old guys. Mm. <laughs> wow. I, really, I, I took a head count and, uh, well, I didn't take a head count, but I, I did a, a casual head count. And, and really the demographic was a 24-year-old man. Like, there was not much variance there. And they say Twitter isn't real life. <laughs> <laughs> That feels reflective of the Nolan fans online, certainly. So do you get the feeling that it's the people who are like, I will risk my life for a Christopher Nolan movie who are going even in Paris where, you know, the virus is much more under control than it is in much of the United States? I mean, the virus is more under control than uh, than in other places, but it's still the numbers are on an uptick. And that's really concerning. I was masked and uh, heavily gloved and uh, <laughs> bathing myself in Purell at, at every interval. So I tried to stay as safe as I could. But there were a lot of people there that were not wearing masks. And there were a lot of people there uh, who I asked and I interviewed who did not even give it a second thought. Now, I think that has to do with the film itself. As I said, the people that are going to go see a film on the opening night are going to be a self-selecting group. And if it is a Christopher Nolan film, then that self-selecting group is going to be uh, 23-year-old guys. And and those are people that, statistically speaking, both in France and I think uh, abroad, uh, are the least concerned about the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And so there wasn't that much tension in the air uh, that I felt personally, uh, but that might just be because those are the people that by definition were going to go out anyway. 
Yeah. And you had mentioned to us before we started recording that at least at one of your screenings, there was a sort of like premium ticket that people could buy. Could you tell us about that? <laughs> well, there there you go. That was at the, the second screening that I went to. There, the, the theater, I should say that the theater that I went to go see it at, uh, the largest theater in Paris, actually shut down for the entire month of August, which is extremely uncommon for a movie theater in Paris. Uh, you know, they, they tend to be, they do brisk business throughout the year. And, and maybe I'll remind you, there was a video that went viral about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, where it was a French theater owner destroying a, a, a Mulan poster after the oh, Disney had yeah. announced that they were going to send that movie directly to Disney Plus. Uh, And so there was a lot of pent-up need and and pent-up desire on the part of French exhibitors to really have a big movie and to have something to bring the masses back. One of the things that this theater did, which actually, I should say, it, it closed down for the entire month of August because they just didn't have the movies to bring in the masses. It's a, you know, 1200 seat theater. They need to fill it up to keep it going. Uh, so they reopened for Tenet and perhaps as a way to celebrate the reopening and perhaps as a way to assuage people whose nerves might be a little bit frayed by the past six months, uh, they reserved one full balcony for VIP tickets. Now these are VIP tickets that cost 50 euros a pop. It's about like $55 American. Uh, they came with a glass of champagne and they came with an entire row you know, for yourself. And, and so I think that that was in part a celebration, you know, the champagne, we're open, for business, we're open for business again. And that was also a way of saying like, hey, guess what? If you want to pay a premium, you can be a little bit safer. And 55 US dollars, 55 is a palindrome. Mm. <laughs> As it happens. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, without, you know, getting into spoilers, I'm, I mean, I think you and I, Katie, I both are, are curious, what did you think of the movie and how did it seem to play in, in the two audiences you were in? I mean, uh, it's a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of movie. I don't, without getting too much into spoilers, you know, we could say that I think it's been revealed in the trailer that the movie plays with a little bit of the mythology uh, of the Terminator series in a way, and that, that there's a war between the future and, and the past, and that the war between the future and the past is being sort of fought in the past. In a way, it feels like it was a movie that was beamed in from the uh, you know the post-COVID era for a way of saying, like, you know what, this is going to be not just every blockbuster, it's not just going to be a blockbuster, it's going to be every blockbuster, and in it feels like it is the ultimate Christopher Nolan movie for better and and often for worse because it's just him. You're really just getting uh, unfiltered, pure Nolan, uncut Nolan. And um, that can be a lot sometimes because, you know, Nolan, I wouldn't want to live in his headspace. And uh, the movie certainly makes you do that for about two and a half hours. And it's loud and it's it's confusing in an awful place in in a lot of places as well. But it is also a kind of a Hollywood spectacle of the greatest degree. And so it's tough because you you appreciate the the artistry and the, and the sheer technical mastery that went into making the movie, but it does result in a somewhat punishing experience. It's two and a half hours of just intense Nolan. Was it a spectacle to the degree that you get why he's so... I mean, Nolan's never been a fan of the small screen, so it wasn't a surprise. But were you like, I am glad I'm seeing this on the big screen? There is a lot of uh, visual information in it. I mean, you know, one of the concepts of the film is that you have people that are moving uh, linearly forward through time and people that are moving backwards through time. And it's almost impossible to explain. At one point, he brings on uh, the actress Clemence Poesie to just do a little bit of scene-setting exposition. And even she can't really explain it. She says uh, a very famous line of dialogue that I think every single review has cited. Don't try to understand it. Feel it. And so the movie doesn't want you to understand it in a way either. It just wants you to feel it. And and you feel it 
in your bones. <laughs> you feel it in your eardrums, you feel it in your kneecaps, uh, you feel it in every part of your body because it is packed with visual information, it is packed with special effects, it is packed with uh, extremely ornately choreographed set pieces. In fact, the movie is just a series of set pieces, each one seemingly building on what came before it. And, and so, yeah, I mean, you do really want to see it on a big screen. It does probably not have the same impact if you watch it on an Apple Watch. Uh, <laughs> You just gave Chris Nolan, Nolan a heart just attack. Like, yeah, he just like shrieked <laughs> at the, even the idea of that. So, Richard, you're thinking of taking uh, somewhat extraordinary measures to see Tenet. We both live in one of the six states uh, where theaters have not reopened at all, so you have to leave uh, New York State to see Tenet. Um, but also, you wrote this piece for VF.com this week about kind of your misgivings about not just being in a theater, but about reviewing it. Have you gotten any closer to resolving those? Yeah, I mean, the thrust of what I wrote was really, you know, geared at a sort of American, a particularly American, you know, dilemma, which is there are these big movies, New Mutants, Tenet, coming out in in some American theaters in some American cities in the next couple of weeks. And yet, uh, you know, like you said, there are six states that the theaters aren't open yet. And even in the ones that are open, we're seeing numbers tick up and, you know, college students are going back to campus and they're, test, you know, having crazy high positive testing rates for COVID. And, and so it doesn't really feel like it, it's a time in America, at least, to really encourage people from my perspective, to go out into the theater. And so then you're, you know, I ask myself, as other critics have asked themselves, um, I know that, you know, A.A. Dowd for the AV Club wrote something along these lines recently, Mike Ryan for Uproxx, um, basically asking if it's moral, if it's sort of an endorsement to go see a movie, to review a movie that's only playing in theaters. I don't know really know where I fall on that ultimately. I think, obviously, everyone's just going to have to make their own decisions, as people in Paris have and elsewhere have. But yeah, I don't know. It's a strange thing. And at the same time, like based on everything I've heard, and, and, and Ben, you certainly made me even more curious, I really want to see the movie, uh, Tenet in particular, New, New, New Mutants I could do without. But <laughs> but yeah, so I might have to, well, I'm, I'm, I'm safely crossing state lines anyway uh, to see family. Um, and so there's a potential that I might be able to see it um, in Massachusetts. But I'm not going to risk my safety or anyone else's to do that. So we'll have to see. I don't want to defend Nolan if there, there, I mean, to the extent that there is a level of lack of responsibility in opening a movie given the current context. Um, but I will say that it seems, you know, having seen it, that he is playing the long game in the extent that the movie is just going to be the only show in town for a very long time. And in its vastness, in its heft, it really does encompass the entirety of blockbuster filmmaking. And so even if you don't see it now, or even if, you don't see it in two weeks, it'll probably still be playing in three, four, five weeks. And who knows you know, what the state of any of the you know, pandemic is going to be in that time. But there's a certain level of uh, cocksureness in saying, you know what, I want this movie to come out now in 2020 and, and not in 2021 while there will be competition because the, the movie is certainly uh, aware of its impact and it's certainly aware of the fact that you do kind of want to go see it again uh, or feel the somewhat responsibility to see it again just because you didn't get everything. Uh, and so by being the only game in town for what could very well be the next three to four months, it's not a stupid move. Right. Um, to be real crazy people, because this is a, a show about a word season, do we feel like any of this puts Tenet in a better or worse position for an actual Oscar run? Like, it's something that comes up for most Christopher Nolan movies this year is going to be weird as hell. I mean, Ben, you've actually seen the movies, so you can speak the quality to it. But, like, is Tenet going to be something we're talking about for the next eight months? Or are we going to, like, look back at this and be like, okay, we got it out of the way, but, like, let's let's move on? 
I mean, it's hard to say. On pure technical merit, I think that the movie can certainly uh, make a good run for it in any number of, you know, technical categories, cinematography, sound editing. Is sound editing and sound design mixed together this year? Yeah, or, sound um, mixing and sound editing. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're well, back to being one category. There's, They might want to, you know, reinstate the two categories for <laughs> to give it two oscars <laughs> there's just there's there's a lot of sound editing and there's a lot of sound mixing in it yeah um yeah and so i think that like in a, in, in any you know year it would be a, a significant player for all technical categories I, I do remember i believe it was elvis mitchell the the show the treatment that he prefaced his show there was an interview with christopher nolan I don't remember if it was for The Dark Knight or The Dark Knight Rises uh, that saw the horrific shooting in the film theater. Dark Knight movie. Rises. It was The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. And and I, I remember the very beginning of uh, Elvis Mitchell's show where he, he said, like, you know, I recorded this interview before this tragic event in Colorado. Um, and if that changes your feelings about the interview, or if that changes your feelings about the film, then that's fair. And I thought that was a very interesting thing because obviously there was absolutely no way that anybody who made the film could have predicted or had or had any anticipation that it would yield to that would lead to such a tragedy uh, and yet it still was for you know that period kind of imprinted with the tragedy uh, this case there's a real responsibility on the part of the studio and of the theater and that, that that actually could lead to more human tragedy that is completely tied to choices made uh, by the people behind the film and, and so i do think that like if the dark knight rises uh, shooting led to that reaction that I think that if Tenet's release does, you know, lead to more human tragedy, then that certainly could be an after effect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that's, I mean, I guess the Nolan and, and, and Warner, like the Warner's like they they are sticking at least to some principle, which is like, they're not sending screeners to critics. So no one who lives in New York or Los Angeles, uh, or in North Carolina, where Katie is, or, you know, Maryland, or New Mexico, like, no one writing about film can safely watch a screener of Tenet at their homes, and then advocate that other people go out and see it in, you know, in theaters. Anyone who's going to review it or write about it has to go see it in theaters, too. So I think there is maybe at least you could look at it in a good way that there is some participatory requirement to it. Whereas with some other things that have trickled out into theaters, like most recently Unhinged, the Russell Crowe movie, like, you know, I safely watched that at home and wrote a review. And then and weren't you so glad you did? You know, well, yeah. So, yeah. Really, maybe really feel, feel really good about America, that movie about <laughs> well, road because, rage. Well, because, because yeah. driving to the theater might give you road rage or dropping <laughs> <Right>. back. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think that I'm not of the mind that, like, Warner Brothers or Nolan are being reckless or anything really i think that they are just like so many ind- businesses and individuals around this country and in the world like just trying to figure out what they can do given the little guidance that anyone's getting at least in the united states so i guess well, it, it really is just like a decide for yourself but you have to go see it in the theater no no one can kind of sit safely at home and then you know and judge it from afar yeah now, given award campaigns are sem- i mean there may be one Twelve percent about the film and eighty-eight uh, percent about message control. Um, mm. And there's only so much message control that you can, you know, you, you can have a hundred percent of message control before the film comes out. Once the film comes out, the world will have its way with it for good or ill. And should something arise, then that that message control is going to get out of the hands of the filmmakers, out of the Warner Brothers strategists, out of you know award season hoi polloi. And then it's anybody's guess because that really is playing with a much larger force than any one body can really prefigure. 
You imagine what they hoped is a message they would have is that they're saving movie theaters. Like they, I think a huge part of the motivation here is to give something to help these theaters survive. Like they're not allowing uh, it to play at drive-ins, which I think has been a big controversial part of it. And I imagine it's part of like AMC and Regal really pushing for their businesses to stay alive. And like maybe that'll happen. You know, maybe Tenet will make $100 million uh, in theaters, which is kind of hard to imagine, but maybe it will. But I feel like it's going to get so wrapped up with what's happening in the U.S. with like uh, schools having to close, universities sending their kids home. Like there's just so many bits of evidence that we're not ready to reopen in this way. And I think in July, maybe it seemed like by now we'd have it together, but it doesn't feel like we do. And you worry about it just getting swept away as being like, yep, there's one of our other bad ideas of trying to reopen too fast. Right. Well, if Tenet, you know, does pursue an awards campaign and, you know, the theaters do reopen and make $100 million, then that's going to be the central focus of the campaign. Yeah. The film will almost be superfluous to it. Yeah. And then you figure out how to get any of the Academy voters to see it on the big screen um, because they're all ancient and it probably shouldn't go to a movie theater at all. Uh, maybe that the private screening rooms of L.A. will be very busy. Um, well, Richard, are you excited to see Tenant when you finally do? Like, has, are the reviews making you uh, more eager to go and potentially risk your life? Uh, when the first reviews from London dropped, I think that was, what, last Friday? Mm-hmm. I sat in just really, like, indignant, bitter envy <laughs> for, like, two hours. <laughs> I was... And no, I'm not, like... I like I like plenty of Nolan movies, but I'm not like I'm always curious what his new thing is going to be. But I'm not by any means like a diehard. But I think it was that people were seeing this big, you know, long star driven spectacle movie, uh, which is something I think a lot of us have been craving, you know, outside of the house that people had got to see that and we didn't not yet. Anyway, I think for me, it was less about the movie and more a frustration that like the government has gotten us to this place and it could have been different potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would, that it was just another thing to be frustrated about, you know, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm really eager to see it. There's a lot, you know, I, I'm curious about John David Washington uh, really getting, you know, a, a big starring role follow-up um, from black Klansmen and to see Robert Pattinson in, you know, styled like Nolan <laughs> with the floppy hair and everything. Uh, Elizabeth Debicki, even Kenneth Branagh doing a borsty Russian accent, which he already did in Jack Ryan. Um, <laughs> He's I've, not going to let it go to waste. No one saw Jack Ryan. He's got to use that thing again. That's exactly. It's actually just B-roll from that. Just, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, I, I'm excited. Um, I, I, I just don't know when I'm going to see it, which like is going to be like, maybe a little bit like that Simpsons episode where Bart can't go to the Itchy and Scratchy movie and then they flash forward, you know, 30 years or something. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I guess it's time to see, you know, that movie. And maybe that'll be Tenet. I find myself excited for Mulan in a way I didn't expect to be. I think we're going to talk about it next week. Uh, It's coming to Disney Plus at a premium rate. Um, And kind of knowing that I can't see Tenet, I'm like, all right, another big flashy studio movie that I can watch at home. Like, I'm anticipating it more than I think I would have. So we'll, we'll see how that works. I will have a review of Mulan up on Friday. So the day after this podcast post. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just in fairness to you, Richard, uh, I've seen Tenet and I still live my life in indignant envy. So. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, that, that actually does make me feel better. So thank you. Um, um, last question for you, Ben, since you can go to theaters, uh, will you continue going to theaters post-Tenet or are you going to kind of uh, retreat back to the safety of your home? Um, I mean, I have been going to the cinema. I mean, I have, been, I have been going to movies, you know, since the deconfinement. The thing is, is that if you pick the right times, you, you will basically find no one there. Uh, you know, the problem is really just kind of like 
finding something to see. I, I you know, listen, I've, I've seen Tenor twice now. I, I'm not going to see it a third time. I don't need to see it that badly again. So yeah, if something comes out, they're going to start releasing some of the major French releases starting in September, September, October. And so I'm kind of looking forward to seeing some of the films that were slated to be in Cannes, the, the French films that were slated to be in mm-hmm. Cannes. I don't think that's any of the... Um, International ones are due out for a while. Uh, so, yeah, I think I'll probably keep on going. I mean, I wear a mask. I, I try to follow all the safety protocols, and I hope that other people are going to do the same. Let, let's, let's, let's cross our fingers, right? Yeah. Um, well, continue keeping us posted on this alternate world where theaters are open and life is somewhat more normal. Um, and thank you in the meantime for reporting back on Tenet. You were, you were doing an important duty for all of us. Yeah, and, and Ben, I hope to see you on the, on the Quasette, uh next May. Let's let's hope that there still is a next May. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. So now we're going to hear the conversation that Mike Hogan had with Giancarlo Esposito, who is nominated for two Emmys this year, not only for returning as Gus Fring on Better Call Saul. Uh, we all know Gus Fring from Breaking Bad. Uh, he also got nominated as a guest actor for The Mandalorian, where he shows up in kind of the final episodes of the season as Moff Gideon, a another bad guy, but a really different bad guy from Gus Fring. Um, they had a really long conversation that was really hard to cut down and not only talked about, you know, his process of playing these two guys and what it was like to return to a character like Gus that he had made so famous uh, almost a decade ago. Um, But they talked about Do the Right Thing and the George Floyd protests and all of these other topics. You can just really kind of hear his mind at work as they're on the phone, which is a fascinating thing for an actor who we've all been watching as long as we have. Um, I think it's a great conversation. So let's listen to Mike talk to Giancarlo Esposito. All right. Well, I am thrilled to be here with one of my favorite actors, Giancarlo Esposito, a four-time Emmy nominee, including two nominations this year. And you did a great video on your Twitter when you when you got nominated, and it seemed like that was an emotional morning, which is really cool. Uh, one for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for Better Call Saul. And the other for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series for The Mandalorian. So congratulations. Welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And 
Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I've been very excited this season to have garnered two of television's highest award nominations, and certainly the other two are still fresh for me. And you mentioned my little video I made. I, I was so hesitant because I was certainly in tears. Always wonderful when you're acknowledged. And uh, so that morning, I, I had one leg over the bicycle of the stationary bike, one foot clipped in, and the phone <laughs> rang. And it was my wonderful PR team and managers all together. I had forgotten it was going to be announced. I never sort of keep track of that, so I never know. So I was head over heels and very, very emotional. But I thought, you know, sit down and let the real part of you come out and let people see who you really are. And certainly that gratitude was expressed in that Twitter video. Well, I'm glad you did it. And it's true. I mean, you know, this year you kind of play two mega bad guys, right? But you have such an incredible resume. You know, your IMDb page is like is like 40 uh, miles long. And and going through it, you know, there's an incredible range. You, you've played all kinds of characters. So it's exciting to talk to you. Gus Fring, I'm a huge Gus Fring fan and thought we could start there. This is a character you've been playing for a decade now, I guess, between uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. It's been a decade and I'm really quite amazed it's gone very quickly and and very fulfilling to do that in both incarnations of Gustavo Fring. How has your view of the character changed in that time? Uh, do you see him the same way you did at the beginning? Has it evolved much for you? Uh, I see him very differently now. You know, my immediate reaction being asked to come back for Better Call Saul was to say yes because of my love for the filmmakers and creators and Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould. But I then thought about, oh, well... You know, I, I wanted to be thoughtful about my answer in regard to what I could bring to the party. I didn't want to bring the same Gus Spring with me. So I started to think about how do I play younger? How do I play older? How do I play a guy who's not that same guy that we left off seeing um, in a backwards fashion? And so I started to earmark those emotions and feelings and thoughts. And then I asked to speak to Vince to see how far or deep that exploration might go. I'll tell you a quick story. I did a scene in front of Los Pollos Hermanos, which you've seen already, but I don't want to spoil for other people, but yeah, maybe we'll spoil it a little bit. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Poyos has been in a, a state of absolute destruction, and uh, I come on the scene one morning, I got to talk to Mike, and I'm picking up the trash from the detritus and throwing it in the, the dumpster, and and I did the scene, felt good about it, but had a little question. Maybe my emotions with Mike were a little too much. Maybe my reaction wasn't as, as, as close to the best or, or as quiet and full of contempt that would be a Gus in Breaking Bad. And so I left the scene going, I think it's all right, and, but I always had that doubt. And as an actor, you know, you're, you're very aware of your emotions and you clock things. So a year later, six months later, I'm in the ADR booth and here's that scene because we had a lot of street noise and car noise. And we had and I went, oh, do we have to really do that? And, and, and I met our wonderful ADR technician and uh, who we talked and she was from Denmark. And we'd only talked on the phone for years and years and years. And I finally met her. And so I'm watching the scene then and I'm going, oh, I had the same feeling I had when I was making it. I right. went, no. Wait, he, he, that's a little too much. He's a little too upset, and he's showing it. And uh, and she went, John Carlo, this is a fantastic scene. And we talked about it, and she said, and then I realized, oh, that's right. 
this is Gus years before. This is a right. perfect pitch. And so that's an example of it. I mean, the interesting thing about Better Call Saul in general is you're watching characters that you know become what you knew them to be, right? So he's in an earlier yes. stage. Yes. And so I realized, don't doubt yourself. And she agreed. No, it was perfect. You yeah. know, it's right where you should be. <laughs> um, so I, I always wonder if I'm, you know, in the right place and have the right modulation again, because I, I never walk into, you know, and the first thought is, oh, they want me to play Gus again. Part of your acting thing is, oh, I've done that. I know that. But how about I switch that very quickly to, oh, I haven't done that. And I don't yeah. know that. Yeah. And that allows me something, uh, allows a space for something new to happen. I asked Bob Odenkirk this. Uh, I talked to him a few weeks ago. Do you have any hopes for the character in the final season? Well, I always have hoped that you would see more of Gus's real life and where he comes from. I don't expect that to be revealed uh, in this Better Call Saul because, after all, it's a show about Saul. And, and yeah. it, it has to do with all of our characters' moral turpitude and temperature. And Saul has revealed he's made a choice to be a certain human being. He certainly is um, in uh, connection to the danger. He, his life, as you know, those last scenes of this season uh, with he in the room with Lalo mm -hmm. and with Kim. Oh, some of the best writing and best acting ever. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I, I feel as if season six is going to be Gus's reckoning, obviously with the Salamanca family. And I can't wait for that. And, and Bob is so generous and gracious in his thanks to me always about, you know, joining this cast. He said, look, I know how it is to be asked to reprieve a role and for you to come here and reprise uh, this role. He's always in such deep gratitude. But my hope is that maybe we do a limited of the rise of Gus. Yeah. Because yeah. all of your questions won't be answered, nor do we ever want them to. But I'm fascinated. I think the R.O. audience is fascinated by the idea of where he comes from and how he got there. And I think that revelation would be wonderful for us to see as well. Well, it seems like, you know, it is an expanding world. We had the, the Jesse had his movie this year. So um, and, and so speaking of expanding worlds, the Star Wars world is ever expanding. And The Mandalorian was really kind of the anchor show for Disney Plus this year. And you have an Emmy nomination for playing, as they call it in that, that world, the big bad, who's behind the guy that you thought was the bad guy. Werner Herzog wasn't good enough. We had to get to Moff Gideon. Now, let me ask you this. Were you a, a Star Wars guy in the 70s and 80s? Did you, were you a fan of the series? I was. I was a fan of the early movies because I felt like they really moved me to a different consciousness about a universe that could soon be ours. Um, soon to come to a theater near you. And this year in 2020, we've experienced so much in many different ways from how we're led and guided and consoled. And I'm still amazed that no one has really gone on national television to say, hey, it's going to be all right if we do these things. How stupid. Like, I just can't even believe that. Um, yeah. So our world of Mandalorian um, allowed me to go back to those early Star Wars movies and realize what I really love about them. It, yeah. It's it's really the connection that George Lucas had to the power of myth and to the writings of Joe Campbell. In fact, I've gone back to revisit those writings uh, and the Bill Moyer show that was a, a revelation for us as an audience to see how mythology affects our lives. Mm -hmm. And the importance of this show in the form that it's in 
18 Emmy nominations. Of course, that's a great honor um, for all of us involved, and specifically and especially for me in playing Moff Gideon. But what tantalizes me is the fact that we can now start to see um, a real hero, uh, someone who's in service to protecting that child. And we need those role models for our young people, for our, our young adults, and for our adults as well. To have the confidence to stand up and, and speak to what is necessary and what's needed, behind that confidence has to be courage. And so I love this particular show because it opens up a world for me as Moff Gideon of mystery because, look, we, we don't yet know if he's completely good or bad. We know he wants something and he clearly states that. Mm -hmm. uh, you have something that I want. But what is it that he wants from that child? What really is it? Is it for the benefit of all humankind? It speaks to us in our world today because many people are kind of looking for order, you know, and that's reflective of the fact that we know what's going to help us when we walk out of our door. We know we should cover our mouth, but it's been three months, four months. I just can't do it anymore. Screw you. I'm not doing it. Well, we need Moff Gideon, man. Right. It's sort of like Durga, the great god in India, who you see riding a tiger with a head in her hand and a sword in another. That's Moff Gideon. You do as I say, because he's trying to protect all of us, that we have a future, right? right. So yeah. I, I love this sort of um, playing with mythology, even if our major part of our audience don't know that that's what it is, so that we can stand up and be empowered to be courageous you've obviously gone far beyond kind of like oh he's evil how do i play a good villain you're, you're really you're <laughs> you're looking for all the angles on this character that he could represent in some ways uh, some kind of positive force as well potentially i feel like i have to leave that as an option yeah you know it's a similar you know as to what i thought about playing gus oh yeah i can go that i know that in my sleep wait a minute you don't this is a different guy it's yeah. the same thing here with moff gideon like, oh, yeah, he, they want me as the bad guy. They want me to be firm. They want me to take control. Yeah, I got all that in me. But what can I play that, that is not on the page and that is of wonder and expectation to me? Well, that feels like a good segue to talk about a character that I hope you don't mind my bringing up, who is such an opposite of Gus and, um, and I think Moff Gideon, which is bugging out. From do the right thing, and and we went back on this podcast and rewatched it and talked about it with our our film critics. A hugely foundational movie for me growing up. I think I was fourteen when it came out, and your character bugging out and do the right thing is, I mean, it's right there in the name of the character, right? He is the he is all kinetic energy. And have you had a chance to go back? And you you had a great run with, with Spike Lee, with School Days, Mo Better Blues, Malcolm X. But ha when's the last time you watched Do the Right Thing? And ha have you been thinking about it in this recent moment after George Floyd's killing and, and all the protests that have been happening in the Black Lives Matter movement? Uh, how could I not be thinking about it? watched it about a month ago um, to celebrate. I think it was the 30th anniversary of the film. Um, watched it a year ago uh, where I saw a, a film version of it in Europe um, that was scratched and dented and it made me think about how old I am, <laughs> how seasoned <laughs> I am, um, and have nothing but really wonderful things to say to Spike Lee in regard to how this film holds up and yeah. how important it is. The other third link is watching uh, on a morning the police footage of the Minnesota police station 
uh, and them on the roof setting up whatever sandbags or rifle positions that they were setting up in the daytime and then revisiting the news feed that night same shot with no one on the roof police station in complete flames yeah. people running in front of the camera and screaming no justice no peace and throwing things and i tears in my eyes i went this is our last scene riot scene close to the end of the movie of do the right thing yeah i was transported back to that moment visually um and in my heart and have so much respect for the film the message of this film is timely go back and look at it spike was touching on all of these points in this movie and i was moved to tears once again it it seems like we have we not learned anything from that have we not progressed any in any way in our human nature is this really necessary i've since you know i have my own personal story is i'm from an interracial marriage and have interracial children who are all for our girls thank goodness they're a little more graceful than i was and stepping through life at their age <laughs> um understand their emotions about protesting all of whom have been out there protesting i'm praying that they're always peaceful um and they have been and they have been safe and that part of them has got that out of their system because they're looking to connect with their own blackness yeah. and they're looking to question white privilege sadly you know just because you're white does that mean that you have privilege well they question their mom's privilege it's been a very interesting time i'm not i'm divorced so my family's in one place and the girls are mostly with mama and then we've had great discussions about it so i had to start sharing you know my stories of 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 the racist past that has been foisted on me because yeah. the whole reason i became an actor and 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 also my conversation with spike back in the old days while we were making the movie you know especially malcolm x and of course do the right thing is john carlo john carlo what side are you going to take you know what what's going to happen you know is it race war in america are you are you black or you white are you black or you white and and he opened my eyes and i yeah. said spike do i really have to make a choice i'm human you know and so it's been an interesting time for me i respect this film i respect that i was at the forefront in a film that that really on on one of the 100 best of all time list that allowed us to question that and now we've gone further i came to this country and i wasn't accepted and it made me hurt anxious angry i wasn't accepted by black people and i wasn't accepted by white people and that hurt me Yeah. Because I felt like I had the best of both worlds, and that's what I tell my children. And so I I wasn't accepted but really by the African American community until I did do the right thing. Yeah. Until I could act and act as if I was black. And of course I'm black and I was judged only by this color of my skin, not by the content of my character, not by what was in my heart spiritually. It was the color of my skin. And so I love African American black people even the ones who say you're different. Oh, you're different, huh? You got that good hair. What do you mean <laughs> by that good hair? You know what I mean? I understood they didn't know me. I know that on the outside we see color here. Yeah. And on the outside anything could happen. And you know, when I'm shooting in New Mexico, it's the wild wild west, baby. 
My girls come to visit me. I'm telling, I just say to them, look, they all drive. You can take the car, but just understand something. This is a wild, wild west. Everyone's got a gun, right? So be practical, be wise. But I want people to know what I stand for. I stand for all humanity, all people. Well, let me ask you one more question on this sort of related topic is, you know, you've played drug lord, drug dealers. Uh, I noticed that you played three different characters on Miami Vice in two years, which is kind of amazing and hopefully some kind of record. Um, you've played police <laughs> officers. What do you think about that That notion that some activists are saying that Hollywood has kind of um, glamorized police work and that, you know, it, it's turned the police into some kind of heroic people that, that maybe that's not the reality of policing and that that has kind of warped people's notions of, of how society works. Look, we're all representative of each other, not only as human beings, but also in what we put out there in our entertainment world, because that's where we get certain ideas and, and reflections of who we are as people. I stopped playing drug dealers and um, robbers and crooks and after those three Miami Vices. I yeah. stopped for many years. I did have a responsibility where some other actor um, uh, colleagues of mine said, I don't have any responsibility for any of that. But I stopped for about five years playing any of those characters at all. And it, certainly it, it affected my pocketbook. I think I stopped after Hootie and the Blowfish on NYPD Blue, where I died in Jimmy Smith's arms. Because yeah. I went, and it was a great episode, and I loved doing it, but I went, you know, this is, I don't want to cultivate a career of just playing those characters that people look at as being harmful to their safety and being bad people. I believe that now we need shows that really address some of these issues because they can help move us forward, because entertainment has a way of getting to so many different people. So I take my responsibility. I take my personal responsibility to really try to understand because those people who feel like the police are their enemy, they watch those shows to see how that behavior is. Mm -hmm. They watch those shows and they then determine all police are sadly pigs. Um, all police are meatheads. All police are this or that. And there's no blanket way to predict human nature or what's happening in the moment. And so we've come closer to finding out the truth. The truth stays the same. It never changes. We often change around it. We have body cams that should be used that help illuminate the truth, not by what I say or the perpetrator says, but what really is real and what really happened. So all this redefinition of how we view and how we use law enforcement is going to be an extremely important step in the next stage of us learning to return to our humanity. Because we're so ingrained by the news, things we see, things we're told, past representations of what a police officer might be, um, then that fear comes. And for certainly for some of us who have dark and brown and black skin, um, God, I even want to just spank myself for even wanting to say that's a healthy fear. But um, sadly, Mike, for me, it's a healthy fear. You know, those, sure. those lights come up behind me, dude. I'm already, my license is already on the dashboard and my hands are on the dashboard. Yeah. Like, that's sick. I roll the window, all the windows, not just mine, all the windows down, hands on the dashboard so they can see them. 
and I'm just waiting. License in between. Hey, how are you? Why would I have to do that, man? Yeah. Like, why do I have to do that? Because I want to live. Yeah. So I tell my children, man, you, hell, let me tell you, survival girls. I, I, if I had a boy, I don't know what I would do. Because you get angry. And, you know, that anger comes up. On the other hand, I'm on the Taconic Parkway two years ago. I get stopped by a police officer. Big, big man. My, my daughter is asleep in the back seat. I'm trying to get her back to college. Of course I'm speeding. And a guy gets out. He has on that old style state trooper hat. And he's a black man. He's, but he walks out into the middle of that lane. Hand on his gun. I said, this is no different, Giancarlo. Right. And yeah. he looks at me. And, and he waits. My hands go on the dashboard. Oh, now he's comfortable with getting closer. You know how fast you were going? Well, I kind of do. The last curve, I was probably going 75. Oh, so you know. I said, yeah, I know. And he looks at me. Hey, I know you. <laughs> I know you. And my daughter wakes up. And he says, get out of the car. My daughter now has tears in her eyes. Because this is a different daughter. She's really light-skinned. She was a little bit frightened. And you get out too. Okay, I'm doing what he tells me to do. I get out. She gets out. He takes out his cell phone. He says, take this. Hands it to my daughter. He said, I, I stopped Larry Fishburne three weeks ago. <laughs> he wanted a photograph. <laughs> and I stood there and took a photograph with him. And uh, he gave me a warning and he let me go. Um, but you must but, you wonder, know, I mean, you know, I'm thinking how I have obviously white privilege because I don't have to put my hands on the dashboard. That's a that's a fact. You know, it just doesn't happen. But you you do have celebrity privilege. That's why I right? told the story. <laughs> I got Hollywood celebrity privilege if you recognize me. Yeah. And right now, I don't think many people would <laughs> with, my, with my overgrown, untrimmed beard. And I never want to use that because I'm a human being. Yeah. But. Are you often asked, do you have any weapons in the car? First thing they say, you know, do you have any, do you have any drugs in the car? Do you have any weapons in the car? Wait, because I'm black, I got drugs in the car? That right. would be my answer, and then that yeah. would be it. I'd be in jail. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> what would Bugging Out do? <laughs> Ooh, Bugging Out, the guy with um, real passion, real kinetic energy, as you put it, um, he would face it down with some strong words and be in jail because he didn't have the finesse, and I purposely created that character that way, or the grace, he had a little knowledge which empowered him, but he hadn't gone back and looked up the, the larger picture of knowledge, which would then allow him to be guided by those steps. My children, when they ask me certain questions, why aren't you doing this, down the other? And I would explain and say, hey, um, well, let me ask you, did you know who John Lewis was? Because I met him. Look up his record. Yeah. Um, did you know, you know, who CJ was, did you know, and do you know who Pettis is, you know, Norman Pettis Bridge, and you know, his history and why that should be named the John Lewis Bridge. I try to allow them to go back and see history because we definitely are repeating it and we could repeat it in a different way because um, we say we're progressive and what's, um, what has been uh, covert has become overt in many parts of our country. And so when do we really get to understand what we're really fighting for you know yeah. i love the inclusive nature of what what are we really fighting for in the black lives movement what are we really fighting for in the defund the police movement what are we really fighting for you know i would venture to say that underneath it all 
we're really struggling to fight for human justice. And, and I think that's all going to come very clear very soon. And that human justice takes a larger role in politics and in people than you could ever imagine. And maybe we close on this. It does make me think of that closing scene of School Days where Lawrence Fishburne and you at the end is just screaming, wake up. And I feel like that moment did finally happen, really, with George Floyd, uh, or it happened again. You know, it has happened at various times in our history, but this is one of those moments. It is one of those moments. It's happened over and over again, but now we're making good on it. And thankfully for all of those white Asians and white privileged people who've stood by Black Lives Matter, uh, thankfully to the whole world, those the, the people all over Europe who've stood up, the people in Australia who are standing up, the aboriginals, this is an opportunity for us to all really see how how in it together we really are. Yeah. Like it's an amazing yeah. moment in time. Yeah. And, and so for me, it's a mirror to my own heart and soul and reminds me back in the day when I used to stand around and someone would tell a group of people a Jewish joke, they'd all laugh, or a Polish joke, because those were really popular. And then I realized and used in my lectures, well, I had to walk away from someone telling a Polish joke because all of a sudden I know Jerry Kokich and I knew some Polish people. And I went, well, how can I stand for that? Yeah. How can I stand here and listen to that? That's not funny to me. Yeah. Why? Because I was in tune to some other consciousness that said, that's a nasty way to be. And certainly I learned that. Oh, laugh at the Polish joke, laugh at the Jewish joke, and then, you know, laugh at the indigenous joke. And then I realized, well, those are my people too. Yeah. And that was a turning point for me. It's a turning point that stuck with me. And I will always be this human being who realizes and has to remind myself the differences between what I've learned and repeated and the new me of what I've experienced and lived. I love being able to reflect upon some of my work that you have so diligently and wonderfully mentioned uh, because it's the joy that I get that takes people from one position in their spiritual mental entertainment consciousness to another. And it means a lot to me. And so I I really want to thank you for having me. Well, thank you for doing this, Giancarlo. I could talk to you all day. You know, congratulations on the nominations. Thank you for all your great work. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And I can't wait till the next time, Mike. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit Pitchfork Music Festival. So now we're going to hear the interview that I moderated, but really just kind of eavesdropped on between Leslie Linkaglotter and Amy Sherman Palladino. Uh, they're two women who have been involved in television in some of the best and most influential shows of the last 30 years. Um, they're both nominated for Emmys this year. Uh, Leslie is nominated as a director on Homeland, where she's uh, directed many episodes. She's an executive producer of the series. 
And Amy is the creator of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is nominated for Outstanding Comedy Series. And she's also nominated as a director in the comedy category. So they're not up against each other. Um, But they've been friends for a long time. Leslie directed the pilot of Gilmore Girls, which was a huge kind of cult hit that Amy created in the 2000s. Um, They've been friends ever since. They have gone on shopping trips together, but have worked on sets together. And they talk about, you know, kind of the, the tired old question of being women in Hollywood, but in a way that I've never heard before. They got just really honest and uh, frank with each other in a way that, you know, made me wonder if they'd forgotten that I was on the line, which made it an even more interesting conversation. It was super hard to edit. I hope to release the whole thing as a TED Talk or something like that someday. Um, But listen to them reminisce about the Gilmore Girls pilot, about the Emmys, about how they plan to attend the Emmys in their pajamas this year. Uh, It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Amy would appreciate this. I constantly reapply lipstick without looking at myself. Amy! Okay, so I see. Can they hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you. Great. I'm announcing this is my last Zoom ever in the history of my life. Um, Lalinka, I love you to death. I am retiring from Zoom. It's all over. How are you? I am so glad to see you, and I'm so glad you're wearing a hat. I was really, really worried that you would not have an interesting hat on and I want you to know I just reapplied my lipstick. You know, I, I sent over some ideas of like, you know, questions to ask each other, but I really want you guys to take it from here since it's already really fun to eavesdrop on your conversation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and Katie, jump in there if we go down a yeah. rabbit hole. Because we will. La Linka and I are good at rabbit holes. We could go down the lipstick hat rabbit hole and footwear because Amy has made me go to John Fluvog and buy like six pairs of shoes when I really only wanted one. So, you know, there's there's a place we could go that uh, we might never recover from. My favorite thing was a conversation that we had. And you were going to the DGA Awards, it was a few years ago, and you didn't have a pair of shoes. And for some reason, I felt like it was really important that I went out shoe shopping for you. So I spent the whole day looking for shoes and texting Leslie pictures of black shoes. And I think at some point she's like, okay, look, you must have a job or something else you need to be doing right now. It's like, it's all fine. I'm totally capable of buying myself a pair of black shoes. Thank you very much, but no. Well, this year we can wear bunny slippers. Yeah. Are you kidding? I'm not even shaving my legs for the Emmys. Fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) That that shit's going out the window. (laughs) So where did we meet? Emmys, I mean, Miss Miss Amy, where did we meet? Was it Gavin's office we met for? It was Gavin, Gavin Pallone's office. office. I read the script of the Gilmore Girls and fell in love with it and had to meet the brilliant person who wrote it. And who did I meet? Unfortunately, it was me. (laughs) I was just impressed that somebody could read. So I was like, wow, that is very amazing. No, I remember weirdly when we were looking for a director, because I had never done an hour long before. It was my first hour long, because I came from half hour. And when I went into the WB and they said, oh, we'd really like you to do, and Suzanne Daniel, God love her, I owe my whole career to her. And she said, "Um, I'd like you to do a comedic hour. And I I went, sure. And I walked out and I'm like, well, so what is that? More pages? Like different margins? Like what what on earth does that mean? So I wrote Gilmore, which was delightful. And I wrote it 
at home. And at the time that I was writing it, Courtney Love and Edward Norton were dating and she was renting a house across the street. And at a certain time every day, he would pull up and she would run out in some sort of lingerie-ish kind of outfitty and kind of jump on him and they would hug and they'd go inside. So like literally the highlight of my day was like, ooh, Edward Norton's gonna be visiting Courtney Love. How did I not know this? I have never Uh, heard that story. It's my favorite thing because it was like, it was such like, well, if I never work again, at least I got to watch Courtney Love and Edward Norton in lingerie. And each other every day. Every day. And then, um, so I knew it had to be a, a chick who directed it like, like there it, there was kind of no discussion about i think we i think we met with a couple of guys and just the way they opened the and like men are lovely i love men i'm married to one um i'm quite fond of him and one thing i loved about lorelei is lorelei was a strong female character who liked men who liked dudes um i think and so. also super smart yeah. You know, yeah. The, what I loved was that you have this incredible mother-daughter story. And both of them were totally intelligent, with a sense of humor, well-read, and had this kind of repartee. But yeah. they were incredibly connected as mother-daughter. But to pull it off, it was important that a woman oversaw it and the benefit was, and I remember talking to Gavin about this, was like, you know, it, the pace of this is so, like, rhythmic and it's so fast. It would be great if a dancer or a choreographer was the director. But there was some implication, like, you know, I always feel like people from the dance world make great directors. Bob Fosse, you know, blah, 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 you know, Rob Marshall. Like, they have a, you know, metronome in them. And so when your name came up and they sent over a commercial that you had made, because I remember it with a marching band in it. It had like a marching band. Oh, in my commercial. God. Yeah. 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 It was, you know what it was? I, so, you know, I came out of choreography, modern dance, and spent 10 years overseas, actually, when the American government sponsored the arts. I know it's oh, shocking. What? In Ooh, Paris, London, and Tokyo. Quick. I know. They actually thought this was a way that cultures could communicate and create bonds. It was an incredible time. That's adorable. That's so sweet. It's quaint. Um, but yes, I came out of choreography. And the only reason I ever directed is I heard a story from my Japanese mentor that I knew I had to pass on and I knew it wasn't dance. So uh-huh. moving people through space, blocking action, which is supposed to somehow be a gender-related male skill set, which has never yes. made any sense to me because, yes. you know, movement is where everything comes from. That felt like a very organic way to start. But that commercial, do you know that what that was for? What? Okay, it was the Grambling State University Marching Band and Drill Team. And they uh-huh. were the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. I flew down there and shot for two days all this amazing footage. And do you know what it was for? Tampax. Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember that. Because I, I remember that because because I also, also joked that like Gilmore Girls was as far as the WB was concerned, like as soon as you started menstruating, you were too old to to watch the show. Like they literally, like they wanted like, 
oh, wait, you need Tampax? Mm, you're too old. Um, and I remember like Laura and I talking about, we're both out of the demographic, yay. But we watched a bunch of stuff and then I watched this commercial and I said, I said, well, first of all, it's, it's a Tampax commercial. So like we have to hire her anyhow, right? Because that, isn't that the rule? Like it's women, we menstruate, we'll all be on the same cycle. Bears will be following us through the woods. Like that's what's going to be happening. And I said, but, but the movement and the motion and the rhythm and the energy, it was weird because it wasn't a commercial about jokes or comedy or acting, but the visual of it, I, I, there was something about it. I'm like, well, I think that's, like literally that's who we have to meet with, right? Like that's the person. We met with a couple of guys who started every meeting like this, like, <gasps> well, mm, so really charming, charming script. And then I'm like, okay, we're done. Like literally, and we're, and scene. So we met, we, we met with you and like, that was it. Like it was kind of like, the love fest and the talking and you talked fast and the hair and the jewelry and the makeup. I'm like, it's the greatest package in the world. Even if she turns out to be the devil, like this is the right person. And the funny thing that I really remember is when we started reading for Lorelai, do you yeah. remember this? And yeah. all these I actors. Think we read everyone in the world. We read everyone in the world. <laughs> but do you remember how many people came in and there was a reference to Jack Kerouac? Yes. And everyone kept coming in. The actors kept coming in and saying Jack Kerouac. And like, you and I said. I don't know how to pronounce it. Ask somebody. Ask someone. That we could not cast anyone who did not know how to pronounce Jack Kerouac's name and actually knew who he was. Because yeah, that was kind of important. That was usually important. And then the same thing <laughs> happened with Officer Krupke. Yes, I remember that. But, you know, the, the, the original Gilmore script had so much. I mean, there were so many things in it that the WB would say like, no one knows who Oscar Levant is. And I'm like, believe me, there's, there's a cabal of gay boys in, in Iowa, you know, who, who have been watching, you know, American in Paris on a loop and they know who Oscar Levant is and that's for them. And if you don't know who it is, I talk about Justin Timberlake on the next page. So just, you know, stick with me for a page. But it was like, yeah. it was a kind of thing where you had to find the smarts Yes. And you had to find, and it's very interesting that the thing of Laura, like, as Dan, Dan tells me, like, every time I write a script, he says, and you've written another uncastable character. Like, because, <laughs> like, I write these things that are so specific, like, it's one person. And, and yeah. literally, it was Laura and Graham. But because Laura and I had to be so many things. Obviously, the network wants her to be cute and adorable and pretty. And we needed her to be funny, but also be able to act. Yes. And be smart, really smart, because you can't sometimes fake smart, because even if you, even if we had told some of those lovely ladies who came in, it's Jack Kerouac, right. and he wrote this book called On the Road, and it was all the beats, and it was like, even she would have said, okay, and she would have said Jack Kerouac, and no one would have believed that girl had, had read Jack Kerouac. Like, it had to be somebody who had the package of, like, the brains and the, and the funny and the heartbreak, and also someone who wasn't afraid to be tough. Yes. Because one thing that I've learned, I, I'm, I'm sure you run across this a lot, especially oh, in Homeland, in, is... Uh, 
actresses are afraid to be too hard. And not to be liked. Yeah, because they've been told for so long, you know, oh, don't be screechy, don't yell too much, don't be too, we want you to be mad, but not too mad. You know, and it's like to find someone who's really going to like dig in and and go toe-to-toe with Emily, you know, in a cage match and be tough enough and not be scared about, is anyone going to like me or what? Did I step over the line? Listen, I've been working with Claire Danes on Homeland, which, you know, every year we reset the show and start over again in a different country, in a different city. And she is the most fearless actress. She has made me a better director because she will go. She's a beautiful woman, but she will go to the depths to honor that character, to be in that moment. And it has been such an extraordinary experience. It's like working with a racehorse that you give a little move this way and you see it's- And they just flow. Yes. Yeah. I know it's, it's, it was a hard, casting process we didn't have our Lorelai till the very last minute oh my god Uh, and and what about what about casting Rory oh my god I think you know with Alexis she had done two school plays also you wrote a really difficult woman girl to cast because she had to be really cute but not realize it and really smart and it was a really difficult role to cast and I remember Alexis coming in and like are we really going to cast? She hated us. Like she just hated us. Like she wasn't, I guess she wasn't feeling good, but she kind of came in and, and Gavin said halfway through, you hate us, don't you? And she's like, well, no, I just, I just don't feel good. I don't really want to be here right now. I was like, and we're kind of like, okay, well, there's, there's honesty. We like that. It was interesting to watch us sort of, and a lot of times Gavin was like, I'm going to be in the corner. <laughs> no, we had to, we definitely had to find our rhythm with each other and to figure out how are we going to be an effective collaborative team with yes. different skill sets to tell this story. And I always believe if you keep the story front and center, you will yes. figure it out. But also we had shoes and alcohol to help us because and the, the bonding of the shoes and the, and the, and the alcohol was, that's kind of all you really need. Yes, that's I mean, all you need. There were some crazy moments within that pilot, but I love the fact that we worked through it. And I think what we ended up making was kind of extraordinary. We had no money. Clearly it worked. Clearly it worked. Clearly it worked. And we became friends out of it, which is also an added plus, but not necessarily expected. No, but I want to I want to continue giving you your props because I haven't been able to, to do this. And I've done it to you personally, but I, I think what's interesting is like when I watch, there are certain key moments for all of our trying to figure out how to talk to each other. There are some key moments. One of them was the fight scene that was basically on the move and it was the fight between Lorelai and Rory and it it was the first time the concept of continuous motion in a shot I'm sure I'd seen it before but it was the first time I'd seen it a worked out choreographed executed and the concept of like thinking about scenes in terms of well, of course you want, you want that, that fight's got to start from the minute they get up at that table at the diner and it is not going to stop until that door is slammed and Macy Gray is on. Right. It, it, it's to watch you work that out 
was, I mean, there, there was many brilliant things that you did in the pilot, the, the crane shot, which made Lauren Graham a star. I mean, it, it did. It was one of those shots. It was, it was the searchers. It was John Wayne and the searchers. It was, it's true. It's that crane shot of grabbing the town, grabbing her, walking her in, and then finding her face. That's it. Boom. Star. Lauren Graham, star. Like, it's so important that whatever your first job is, whoever that person is you're watching, you got to know right away if that person is someone you want to emulate or somebody that you need to ignore. Because they're both lessons. I've worked with both. I've worked with people who I'm like, okay, so everything that person's doing, I know I'm going to do the opposite. But my luck was as as the virgin (laughs) uh, walking in to, to see a woman who's unabashedly a woman, a woman who wore skirts and boots and makeup and her hair was fabulous. And it didn't matter one way or the other to her. Like she was in charge of these dudes and these guys. And she's not pretending that she's a dude or a guy. She wasn't wearing a baseball hat. And like, she was like a chick being out there saying, yeah, I'm a chick. I got my lipstick perfect. And you got to fucking move that shit over there because we got to go, man. Is like, that could have, there, there could not have been a better way for me to see the way this needed to be done. And I don't think I would be anywhere near where I am if you had not been the director on Gilmore Girls. Oh my God. Amy, well, I can't tell you what that means to me. Of course, like that's, you know, I love being a storyteller. I love it. And when you have a great piece of material, you want to tell that story in the best possible way. You know, people say like, well, how do you do all this? It's like, well, you get really good people (laughs) and you say, here's what we're doing. And then everybody brings their A game. And if everybody brings their A game, you can't lose. You can't lose. And also, I mean, I don't know if it's like, you know, people say women and, and I've always been... I don't even know if this is your philosophy, but I will, again, credit it to you because my first vision of a woman director in charge of a set of men, and I don't remember if there was even a woman on the crew up in Canada. I, I, all my visions are of men and you, but it was never, I never picked up a feeling of like, well, I'm a woman, so I have to like assert myself a certain way, or I have to like, it was always just like, I'm me, I'm here, I see it, you know, I got this shit planned, you know, I think you're a great DP, let's work together, oh, that's a great fucking idea, okay, let's, let's get, let's get together, and like, there was always a feeling of just ease and collaboration, and I know that that is the job, but I'm just, I'm always a little loath to take part in like women's panels and women's things. And it's not that I don't support women. I actually, all I do is try and hire women. And, you know, I, I really believe that, you know, it's my job and because I was not helped by a lot of women coming up. So I feel like it is my job to help other women coming up, but I've always felt like to set ourselves apart almost made us not part of the game. And I always felt because I saw you just be part of the game. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I remember when I was going to shoot here in New York, you know, there were a lot of people who were telling me, well, New York crews are different. New York crews are different. And like, you know, you're a woman and just be ready. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what any of that means, but okay. I got on set with my crew. My crew is so great and fast 
and smart and sharp. I'm like, so by different, you mean better? Like, I don't know what you mean by this because I never felt anything. And I'm me, you know, I show up in pink. I got hats on. I look like a jester. I look like a mental patient every time I show up. I say fuck every other word. It's like, I am not. But you know what it is? The crew wants the director to know what they want. Yeah. And I think if... That's really all they care about. That is so true. Because you know what? If you haven't done your homework, they will have to do it for you. But yeah. if you come in and know what you want and you're open to possibility and suggestions, you know, and great ideas, you will have a good experience. And, yeah. you know, I, like you, when I was starting out, I was not helped by women because there just weren't a lot of us. You know, as you know, I've started, I've been mentoring women directors for a billion years, but I was categorically told that there was only room for one of us and it better be me and not to help other women. And I thought, you know what? That is not a world I want to live in. I will not accept that because it is too depressing. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take the risk. Let's push open the door and grab the hand of the next generation. And I can tell you, it has never hurt me. And now I think what's changed in a good way is that women are supporting other women. Yeah. yeah, I think I think I think they, we finally got shamed into it. Women were the worst for a long time. I, I will say, I will just say, we were not each other's advocates for a very very long time. And, I, I and think what you is, you go on a set if if there are an equal number of women to men on a set, that set is going to feel completely female. Yeah. Well, I don't, but I don't know. I'm not a complete anything. Like, I don't think, I think this is a world of mixture. And I don't think that, like, I'm not someone who just wants to show up and it's all women. I also don't want to show up and all I see is men and, or all I see is a bunch of white dudes. Or it's like, I don't want to see that. Me too. I'm exactly the same way. I want to, I want a crew and a world that looks like the world. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Find us at VanityFair.com. Find Ben's Dispatch from the Paris Theaters where Tenet is playing. Find Richard's musings on whether or not to even review Tenet. We'll be back next week. You can find us, uh, in the meantime, on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Ben. Don't follow me on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) You want to plug anything else then? Everyone be nice to your parents. Oh, yeah. Hey, that's, that's the best plug we've had on this show ever. Uh, this episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best summation of all of these end-of-episode awards goes to Ben Kroll. Don't try to understand it. Feel it. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.